This week, Parshas Korach. Korach is a name. It's one of the six or seven uh, Parshas of 54 that are named after individual. And what's interesting is that this Korach is actually not the hero of the Parsha. He's sort of the antagonist of the Parsha. And it begins, Korach, the son of Yitzhak, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi, and Dasam and Aviram, the son of Eliab, and Own ben Pelas, the son of Ruvain. They took something. Now, if you do the genealogy here, you'll notice that Korach is actually a first cousin of Moshe, Moshe's first cousin. And he's going to organize a rebellion against Moshe together with these named people, Dasan and Aviram and On, the son of Pelas. And additionally, verse 2 tells us that they had with them 250 of the leaders of the people, leaders of the assembly. Men of renown, men of distinction. And they're going to contend and contest uh, Moshe's leadership, Aaron's priesthood, and they're not going they, they, This is not a rebellion against God as much as it is a rebellion against uh, the leaders of the people, and, and they're questioning the legitimacy of Moshe and Aaron and all those people that Moshe and Aaron nominated. And Rashi actually says what the. Um, trigger for this was the trigger for this was that Elitzafan, the son of Uziel if you remember all the way in the beginning of Numbers, we had all these discussions of nominating heads of tribes and in the um, tribe of Levi there's three families and each family had a head and Korach was disappointed that he wasn't nominated to be the head of the family of Kahas, instead, the Elitzafon, the son of Uziel, he was the one who was nominated. So basically, what we're told here is that at the root of Korach's rebellion was was envy. But let's let's go through this verse. It's very critical because the way the way the Torah is setting up what's going to happen really sheds light on uh, all the details of this dispute. So first of all, you'll notice that it gives Korach's lineage, very deep to Korach, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi. It doesn't, however, mention who Levi's dad is. And we know Levi is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. So why does it say Korach and his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, and why does it stop there? So Rashi points out, all the way back at the end of Genesis, when Jacob gathers his sons around him and he starts telling them blessings but also he starts prophesizing about their future he makes a critical statement about Shimon and Levi Shimon and Levi seem to get the short end because he seems to not bless them he seems to curse them but one of the things that he says is that when in the future when they congregate don't mention my name when they begin their rebellion, when they have their scheme, don't name me as responsible. And Rashi here tells us, connects those two points. At the end of Genesis, Jacob said, I don't want my name to be placed on Levi in the future when Levi's descendants are going to cause chaos and cause rebellion. Don't mention my name. And therefore, when the Torah, when the Torah attributes the genealogy of Korach, it stops before mentioning Jacob. And what this means is that what Jacob, when Jacob's, you know, we all know who Levi's dad is, right? That, that's not a secret. You just read. It's in the, it's in the text. It's not, like, it's not like not mentioning Jacob makes us forget of who Levi's father is. We all know who Levi's father is. But the point is, is that what Jacob is, is saying here, that there is this future event of rebellion, of causing uh, strife amongst the people, of causing discord and disunity, infighting. And my name should not be placed upon it. There is nothing in that future event that is rooted in me. This is all something they invented from themselves. In fact, that verse talks about what Jacob tells Shimon and Levi when y'all went to Shechem and you killed out the whole city, you used stolen craft. If you remember, when Dina, their sister, was defiled, they were incensed, they were enraged, 
And they went and they told the city, oh, you want to marry Dina? Sure, be all the circumcised. And when they were vulnerable, when the people of Shechem were vulnerable, Shimon Levi came with swords and mowed through the whole city. That's what it says in Genesis. And Jacob tells him, this is stolen craft. What you utilized in this episode was not qualities from me, but qualities that you stole from Esau, from my brother. And now what he's telling him in the future, don't mention my name in a future rebellion, what Jacob is telling Shimon Alevi is you have a tendency to go off script, to say, to start utilizing in characteristics that are not Jacobian, they're not from Jacob. And you use yourself used it with the episode of Shem and Dina, and in the future, Korach is going to use it as well. Jacob is a man of peace. Jacob is a man who's always going to ensure that there is unity, and the activity that, you're, that Korach is going to do has no root in Jacob, and therefore don't mention his name. So there's something here that's really rotten and really corrupt that Korach is going to display. And um, with him, he has Dasam and Aviram. Dasam and Aviram, they appear a few times in the Torah. Uh, these are serial, uh, serial complainers. Uh, they're, always, uh, they're always part of any rebellion. Their names appear various different places. Dasam and Aviram, the, the, these were uh, people that always liked to jump in the bad wagon anytime there was anything to complain about. And then you have Om Ben Peles. These are the offspring of Ruvain. So why is it important to mention the fact that Ruv, the son, the, the, the family, the tribe of Ruvain is the tribe uh, that brought the co-conspirators of, of Korach. Could have been, after all, from any other tribe. Why does it need to mention that the tribe of Ruvain produced those that collaborated with, with Korach. So Rashi tells us, so uh, simply put, you would say, well, it just happens to be that they were the ones who joined in uh, the rebellion. Simply put, that's what you would say. But Rashi really throws an amazing idea here um, that if you remember, beginning of Numbers, it described the encampments of the various tribes around the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the middle, surrounded by the Levites, surrounded by the four groups of the tribes. And if you actually do the math, it turns out that Ruvain, the tribe of Ruvain, was actually right next to the family of Kehas and thus the family of Korach. So what this means is, is that Korach had neighbors and his neighbors were these people. And the reason why they were the ones who were influenced by Korach to join the rebellion was because they were neighbors and they were friends. And they were friends and therefore he joined, uh, these people joined along with him in his evil plot. And Rashi tells us, quotes from the Midrash, which means woe unto the wicked person and woe unto his neighbor. Because of wicked people, they have a way of influencing not just them, but the people around them. And therefore, Korach was wicked, he was corrupt, there was something rotten, but that affected not only him, it affected his neighbors as well, and they were the ones, because they were amongst the tribe of Ruvain, therefore they joined in the rebellion. And I think, you know, for us, the Talmud, for example, tells us that when someone is going uh, to scout out to buy a new home, so of course there's a lot of Factors you want to take into account. Does it have a pool? What's the school uh, in, the, in the neighborhood? What's the floor plans? Uh, you know, what's the lot size? What are the taxes like? Just the time, before you do anything, you look at the neighbors. Because the one thing that's going to impact and influence you more than anything else is the quality of the neighbors. You have good neighbors then they'll influence you and you'll influence them positively. You have bad neighbors, well, you're probably, it's most likely, you know, as people who have, we live in a social world, that we there's social influence, both good and bad, therefore, woe unto the wicked, woe unto the neighbor. The neighbors really help determine the trajectory of their neighbors. You have good neighbors, it'll help you become a better person. You have bad neighbors, it's very likely that uh, you will be influenced negatively by them uh, too.
Now, let's look exactly at what happened here with Korach. So Korach, he does he does a very very logical mathematical complaint. Like his argument is not without merit, and he he says, well, Kahas had four sons. The oldest son is Amram, the father of Moshe and Aaron, and both of his sons were recognized with positions of leadership. So Moshe got something, and Aaron got something. Well, now there's another thing to dole out, and that's to be the Nasi, the head of the family of Kahas. Well, who should be given that? I am the son of the second son of Kahas, which is Yitzhar. And therefore, why does the Elitzaf and the son of Uziel, who is the son of the youngest son of Kahas, so he's the younger cousin, why does he supersede me, override me? Why does he become the leader of the, uh, of the people? And Rashi tells us just a fascinating thing what they did, how they mounted this rebellion. What did, I'm going to read you this quote here, because it's really interesting what Korach did, and you kind of have to ponder, like, well, what's, what's he trying to say with his argument? So he, he got up, and he, he gathered 250 heads of the people, the majority of them from the tribe of Ruvain, that were his neighbors, and they went to Moshe. And he put on them a talus, like a tzitzis, a garment, that's made entirely out of tchelas. At the end of last week's parsha. We read about the tzitzis. And tzitzis, it's a, you know, it's a garment, and it has strings at the end. And one of the strings, you make a blue dye called trelas, turquoise. It's a certain animal. You take its blood, you dip it in the blood, and you use that one string to make one of the strings of the tzitzis blue. Now, what they did was they took an entire garment, and they dunked the entire garment into this dye, this blue dye, and they went to Moshe, and they said to him, if the entire talus is covered in talus, is covered in this color, does it need to have the one strain covered in it? So if, if an entire garment is blue, does it need to have the one strain blue or not? Um, and he said to him, yeah, of course it does. doesn't matter what color the garment is. The garment, every, every four-corner garment has to have tzitzis, six blue strains and two, six white strains and two blue strains. And it's responsible. And they started laughing at him. Is it possible to say that you need blue dye, but one string alone is enough to fulfill your obligation of an entire garment? But if the entire garment is covered in that same color, it doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. Moshe, you're not, uh, you're not well. That's one of their arguments. Korach was actually someone very calculated. He was a great Torah scholar. Like he was a, he was one of the, most important people, and therefore he had clout on all these people. And he's coming with good arguments. And we have to see what does this even mean. And this is interesting, because the, the rabble doesn't join this at all. Uh, all previous rebellions, all previous hiccups in the wilderness all had masses of following. This is just like kind of the creme de la creme. So that was one of the things that they came to Moshe. Another thing they came to Moshe about was about, the, about a mezuzah. We know you have to put a mezuzah at the entrance of every doorpost. And a mezuzah is a small section. If you actually open up a mezuzah, it'll be a scroll. And it's a small section uh, of, of, the, um, of the Shema. The first two pa- paragraphs of the Shema. That's, what it's, that's what's inside the Torah scroll. Uh, and that, of course, is found in a Torah scroll. In a Torah scroll, you have thousands and thousands of sentences. And you have like 15 of them that are in the mezuzah. So Korach and his people, they came to Moshe with another question. If you have a, a home, and the home is full of Torah scrolls, packed, top to bottom, floor to ceiling, Torah scrolls everywhere you can see. The whole house is full of Torah scrolls. Does that same house need a mezuzah on the door? Because after all, it's not just one section, it's the whole section, and there's so many of them included in it is all the mezuzah, all the sections that are mezuzah. It's all there. Does that home need a mezuzah? He says, of course it does. And, and continue, they started laughing at, at, uh, at him again. You know, if you have one mezuzah, a small, tiny section of a Torah scroll, that is enough to absolve the home from its responsibility, to fulfill the responsibility, 
How much more so if you have entire Torah scrolls in the home? Doesn't make any sense what what you're saying. That's what that's that's how they, they did the rebellion. And of course, it doesn't seem to make any logical sense to us. What does the fact that they're contending Moshe's about uh, they're, they're questioning Moshe's uh, Moshe's veracity and Moshe's legitimacy as a leader to appoint other leaders as per the instruction of God? What does this in any way have to do with garments that are entirely blue or homes that are entirely uh, full, replete with Torah scrolls, it doesn't seem to make any sense. So I heard a uh, magnificent explanation from my grandfather of blessed memory who explained exactly the, the there's a whole theory over here that, that Korah has and that these two questions of a, of a garment that's entirely blue and a home that's entirely full of Torah scrolls, that's part of a philosophy that he had that would invalidate Moshe. How so? So, Korah's theory was that a mitzvah, it's there to absolve us from responsibility. You have a certain responsibility, and there's something that you need to fulfill to absolve it. What this means is that ideally, there's something powerful about tchelos, about this color blue. And the Talmud, in fact, tells us that blue is supposed to remind you of God because blue looks like the sea, which looks like the heavens, which reminds you to think about the chair of God. There's a lot of symbolism behind the treles, the blue, of, of the tzitzis. If you're interested, just as an aside, I gave a talk last week uh, titled Fringe Benefits, all about tzitzis. And it's on my website, rabbiwobi.com, and on my podcast, uh, you can listen to it. It's, uh, I gave five reasons why when the Talmud says tzitzis is equal to all the mitzvahs combined, five different reasons from the Talmud as to why that, what, what that might, might mean. Very, very interesting talk. But there is meaning behind blue. And, well, okay, ideally you should have that everywhere. You should have a garment that's full of blue. That, that makes the most sense, right? That's what we, that would be ideal. It's just that the Torah said, you know what, that's impossible. It's expensive. Uh, therefore, just make one string. That's blue. And therefore, well, if you have it in the idealized format, if you have the whole garment that's blue, you don't need that one string of blue. That was Korah's argument. That the one string that's blue, that's only because it's impossible to make the whole thing blue. But if the whole thing is blue, then you don't need the blue string. Similarly, ideally, every home would be full of Korah's scrolls. Well, that's prohibitively expensive, and that's impractical, and, you know... So therefore, Torah says, oh, just take one section of the Torah scroll and place it in your door. But if you have the whole home full of Torah scrolls, well then, you don't even need to, to have the less than ideal version of it in the form of the mezuzah on the door. And this extends to a community. Ideally, everyone should be prophets. Everyone should be great Torah scholars. Everyone should be great leaders. That would be ideal. But that's not possible. So you have one leader, and he's in charge, and he absolves everyone else. That's what Korah says. And therefore, let's read what, he, what his argument here is. Verse 3. They gathered together against Moshe and against Aaron and said to him, It is too much for you. For the entire assembly, all of them are holy. And Hashem is among them. Why do you exalt yourself over the congregation of Hashem? Well, Korach is telling Moshe that our community, the Jewish people, were all holy. It's like a garment that's all blue or a home that's all full of Torah scrolls. We don't need you, the one string, the one leader, and therefore to, to absolve us because we're in the idealized version. Everyone's holy and therefore you're, no, you're not special. Just like if the entire garment is holy, you don't need the one special Stream, and if the entire home is full of Torah scrolls, you don't need that one special section. If the entire nation is entirely holy, then we don't need that specialized role that you play, Moshe, as the leader, and therefore you're redundant. We're all holy. We don't need you. You're not so special. And therefore, you, God didn't talk to you, and you made it all up on your own, and you're a fraud and a charlatan. That's what he's telling Moshe. And what's interesting is that you, you kind of read that with the, the commentary. And Korah has a whole philosophy. And he has a whole understanding of mitzvos, what the role of mitzvos are, and, and how the community ought to look like. And, and it wasn't just pure envy. 
it was envy that had within it a philosophy. Now, the truth is that philosophy is corrupt. It's not true. <laughs> Allah is that, that the mitzvah is not just there to absolve a responsibility. The mitzvah is there for the mitzvah. There is the, there is the mitzvah is, is, is ideal. The, the fact that you have a mezuzah, that's an ideal. That's not just, well, you can't do what's better, just do that. The mitzvah of, 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 the, of the Almighty is an ideal mitzvah in every situation. And therefore, Moshe was ideal. Even for this community, Moshe was legit, as we'll see, it'll be borne out in the parasha. But it wasn't like Korach just overnight just said, you know, just came up with this new, you know, with this thing just as a uh, pure rebellion with no plan, with no ideology behind it. But the truth is, if we go back to the roots of Korach's rebellion, it'll be very apparent from the beginning that Korach's rebellion was rooted in envy. The beginning, the motivation that engendered, that, that kick-started everything was the fact that he was envious. His cousin, his younger cousin was nominated to a role that he would have liked to have had. And on top of that, on top of this rotten character trait, he built this edifice, this philosophical edifice to buttress and bolster his claim. It wasn't like it was the other way around. You know, in life, uh, a lot of times when people, they have something that they want and then they find a way to shoehorn everything else to, to fit in. Uh, uh, this, this, you know, when I think in religious areas of life, um, this is most prominent uh, when, you know, when people are, let's say, disappointed. They don't like, it doesn't jive with their political sensibilities or social sensibilities, a certain mitzvah of the Torah. So they have their desires, their desired outcome is there, that's fixed. But the Torah, well, that's malleable. And they'll work the Torah around and create an ideology that fits with what their desired outcome is. And of course, that's trying to, they're not trying to make themselves compatible with God, they're trying to make God compatible with themselves. They're trying to to form uh, the Torah to conform with them, not the other way around. And of course, that's that's the opposite. You know, we're the ones. It, what what Korah had a conflict, right? The conflict was that he had a character problem that was not assuaged or wasn't happy with the reality. So he said, "Well, let's change reality instead of saying let's change my character." But what the Torah, what the Torah here is doing, it's taking a microscope. And it's examining very clearly how he got there. And it started with the character. And on top of that, he built his whole philosophy. It wasn't like he said, okay, let's try to clear the, you know, a good debate is okay. Let, but let's remove all the other factors that would disrupt our pursuit of truth and just start with the argument. And if he just started with the argument of the philosophy, it's very likely he would have come to a different result because his Philosophy was built upon his preconceived, his 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 in, his biases that were predisposed towards that he had this envy that he wasn't willing to challenge and wasn't willing to quell. That resulted in his uh, in his corrupted ideology, which is logical, maybe, and it, it's scintillating, it's beautiful, it's nice, it's 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 a wonderful theory. It reigns true, perhaps, to the uneducated and uninformed, but really it wasn't one that he arrived at in pursuit of truth. He was arriving at that result in pursuit of achieving his desire that he already had prior. And I think in our life, you know, there's, there's always a... Uh, there's many instances where, you know, where there's a convenient outcome and there's the inconvenient outcome. And we'd like to get to arrive at any. This is not. This is not. I'm saying. I, I think it's most pronounced in, in, in kind of religious tension that we have within ourselves. But I think even in business, for example, uh, when someone has to make a hard choice in business, they are motivated to not make that because that may mean restructuring or may mean that they have to think about their business in a different way. It's not. It's not easy to do. It's a hard thing to do. And therefore, you might create 
all these obstacles at pursuing truth based upon what you already want in your biases. And that's very dangerous because if you want truth, if you really want truth, you want to do what's right, what's best for you and your religious life and your business life, it's important for you to, to not be drawn in one way because it's very likely that, that you will follow and you'll have the good arguments. Korach was able to give a great lecture and a great debate and polemics and convince, like you said, he's able to convince, uh, convince 250 of the best and brightest. It wasn't like there wasn't that there wasn't any legitimacy to the argument itself, but the truth is it was it was based upon the envy and that led him there. And he's able to get the 250 people to join. One of the commentaries explains the reason why he's able to get so many people to join is because those people were disappointed that you know they thought perhaps that you know only the Kohen, only someone like Aaron and Aaron's children, only they could have a deep connection to God, because they do all the work in the tabernacle. Whereas us, you know, we're just a bunch of plebes. And they weren't happy about that. And therefore they said, you know what, we're going to mount this rebellion, because maybe there's something in it for us as well. But it's important, and all the commentators try to stress this, that this was not just a, a, a wanton seizure of power. Or attempted seizure of power. There, there were some spiritual undertones to it as well. Korach was a spiritual person. His collaborators were spiritual people. And they perhaps they said, well, if we have a more pronounced leadership role, we can become, by extension, closer to God. But that's not how you do it. You have to become closer to God in the life path that the Almighty prepared for you. And if God said, you're not a coin, you have to become the best non-coin possible. If God said, you are a coin, you have to become the best coin possible. If you're Korach, and you feel like you were stiffed because your young cousin became got this leadership role. Okay, here's an opportunity to work on your uh, negative characteristic of, of envy. And here you have your, your path that God blazed for you uh, to greatness. So Moshe hears this rebellion. He falls on his face. And he tells Korach, okay, you want to you go this? In the morning, Hashem will make known who is his own and the Holy One. And who does he want to be close and uh, we're gonna make a we're gonna make a um, a shoot off a standoff. Uh, now, why does it say in the morning? So, simply put, is that um, simply put is that well we'll have the uh, we'll have the shoot off tomorrow. That's what it means. Simply, Rashi tells us from the midrash that what this means is that the Almighty created certain limitations in this world, just like it's impossible to take morning and turn it into evening, because morning and evening are distinct and different, so too it's impossible to take the Kohen status of, a, uh, of Aaron, uh, or by extension any of the positions given to by God, and remove them and give them elsewhere. And I think that, you know, kind of looking at the lesson from our perspective, when we think about this idea for us, we have to think about the fact that God has a plan for each and every one of us. And God gives us the tools and the circumstances to achieve our plan. And we have to realize that that's fixed. You know, there, there's something about what we were given, so to speak, in our tools and our circumstances that it's almost like it's morning. Like you can't change it. it, it it's This is the way God wants it. It's, there's morning and there's evening and they cannot be mixed in, and therefore I have a role, and you have a role, and everyone has a role, and the role is given to us by God, and Aaron was given to be the Kohen, and Elisafan was given to be the head, and Moshe was given to be the, the king, and Korach was given what he was given, and that's fixed, and that's unchangeable. And of course, within someone's world, you could actually accompl- accomplish your potential, your mission, or you could fail at your mission. And Maimonides tells us, for example, that every single person in the world can be as great as Moses. Well, we know everyone can't be as great as Moses, right? How can everyone be as great as Moses? The Torah itself says that Moshe can't be, there's no, never going to be an, a future prophet as great as Moshe. But the answer is, is that Moshe was giving his role, his role, be the greatest prophet ever. And he did it. I'm giving my role. And my role might be much, much, much smaller, one hundredth of one millionth percent of, of Moshe, 
But if I maximize what I was given, if I do my job a thousand percent, like Moshe did his job a thousand percent, well, I'm as great as Moshe. Because within my world, within my mission, I was like Moshe. I accomplished it. In absolute terms, of course, I can't, I'm nowhere near Moshe. But in relative terms, I also could give 100% and everyone could give 100% of whatever it is that is uh, their ability. So Moshe spells out uh, the challenge. You're going to take these pans. You're going to place incense upon them. And we'll see who God chooses. Which incense will God choose? If he chooses yours, you know, you're the guy who chooses Aaron's, you know, that Aaron is legitimate. And uh, there's an interesting Rashi here as well that uh, adds another wrinkle to Korach's rebellion, or at least Korach's perspective. Uh, And it says, Korach, who was wise, why did he do this silly thing? His eyes deceived him. He saw, Korach had a certain measure of prophecy, and he saw prophetically that there's this great lineage that's going to descend from him. And we know the great prophet Samuel is a descendant of Korach. And the Talmud says that Korach, that Samuel was as great as Moshe. And of course, that probably means in relative terms, not absolute terms. And therefore, he says, well, I have this great future and this great um, lineage that I'm going to, that's going to spawn for me it must mean that I already have the um, capacity to take on Moshe. This, I think, adds another another wrinkle to to, uh, to Korach's rebellion. The fact that he had, on one hand, the kind of the foundation of his building was the fact that he had envy, and on top of that, he built his whole theory of what the role of a leader is and uh, the the view of what a nation is. And finally, he has this um, support system, this assurances, the fact that he has a very bright future. So it's, it's likely that he really is the man and, and Moshe is an imposter. I, I think it's very likely he does not realize that this is based upon envy. The, the Muster masters, they always strive to try to understand exactly the people's motivation for their behavior. Um, you know, the, the most terrifying person to ever meet is not a thug in a back alley. It's actually yourself. <laughs> it's terrifying. Uh, that's You ever notice that people don't like listening to their own voicemails that they leave? Really strange thing. The, the one voice you've heard more than any other is your own voice. But if you ever hear it being recorded, you don't want to listen to it. And the reason, the deep reason behind that is because we have a skewed perspective of ourself. And then when we hear ourselves kind of from the outside, we hear ourselves as we really are, we're very disturbed. It's very terrifying. It's very unsettling. And that's based upon this whole idea is that our view of ourselves and ourselves the way we really are, the reality of ourselves, uh, those are different. We don't want to feel depressed if we if we're not good people. You got to live with that all the time, right? No one wants to think they're not a good person. It's like the uh, 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 how to win friends and influence people. Dale Carnegie he writes all about the fact that no one, no matter how corrupt or how criminal a person is, no one thinks of themselves as bad. They always have a way to rationalize and justify what they're doing. Why? Because they don't want to face the fact that they're bad, they're corrupt, and what Musser at its core is is actually kind of going outside of yourself and trying to look within and trying to find this magic flashlight to, to look in the inside, the, the depths of your own character, which of course is terrifying, but to do that and therefore to kind of reconstruct yourself from the ground up and to understand the motivation behind every behavior and every action and every characteristic and to really come to terms with that and to really try to rectify and fix from the ground up, your character rebuild yourself as a great person. That's what Musser, uh, Musser is. And here we, we see how the Torah is able to kind of look at, at Korach in a way that he himself didn't see himself. And to him, his ideology trumped everything. But the Torah says before the ideology was the envy. And the ideology was a reflection of the envy. And on top of that, he had something else that sent him 
a stew, which is this prophecy that he had that he's going to have a great future. And that together created this irresistible march towards rebellion against against Moshe. Uh, Had Korach had the characteristic of Musar to look internally and say, okay, what really is driving this? Am I really so concerned about the uh, uh, about the corruption that's happening? Is Moshe really so corrupt? Am I so concerned the fact that I really legitimately, not because of my own personal motivations, just because of my pursuit of truth, I should be the leader not, and not the elite cell phone? No, the real reason is envy. Oh, once the real reason is envy, then if that's really what's motivating me, maybe everything else that I'm using to support that is also based upon the envy and therefore it is, is roundless. And uh, upon analysis and clarification, free of biases, will crumble. Had Korach done that, he probably would have not made, made this mistake. Okay, so uh, so what happens over here? So Moshe tells them, first he gives them some biting criticism. He says, well, the family of Levi, you are special. You were separated from the nation. You were working the tabernacle, and now you want to become also a, a Kohen. You, you, what did Aaron do to you? And Moshe calls Dasan and Aviram, the two conspirators of uh, co-conspirators of Korach, and he says, "Come, let's talk. Let's try to." He summons them. Let's try to iron this out. And Moshe did not want to have this strife fester, and they say to him, "No, we're not coming to you. Is it not enough that you brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey to cause us to die here? You want to dominate us?" So obviously these people, they really go off the deep end and they start speaking very disrespectfully to Moshe when Moshe is trying to make amends. So Moshe, Moshe gets distressed. He tells God, don't accept their offering. I have not taken even a single donkey of theirs, nor have I wronged even one of them. Moshe, what Moshe is saying here is that Moshe, he's telling God, my leader, you nominated me to be the leader of the people. And I did it with absolute integrity. I didn't even take one donkey from the nation, even a donkey that I deserved. What's this donkey that we're talking about? When Moshe was told by God to go to Israel, to go to Egypt, to bring the people out of Egypt. So Moshe rode on a donkey to Egypt. Who, who paid for that donkey? He's on a mission. And you should have the company pay for it, right? He shouldn't pay for his own rental car when he's doing company work. Moshe says, even one chamor, even one donkey, I did not take from them. Moshe had this fastidiousness with the finest of the people to say that I'm a total public servant. I'm not getting any benefit, any fringe benefits from it at all. In fact, the Talmud tells us that whenever Moshe, when they were having this massive fundraiser, the biggest fundraiser in Jewish history, to collect all the gold and all the silver for the tabernacle, so they had a storage house where they had piles of gold all the way to the, you know, as far as the eye could see, donated from the people. And Moshe, of course, was overseeing it. So Moshe would walk in there, and he made sure he had commissioned a special garment, a garment with no pockets. And therefore, when he walks in there, he would always put on that garment, and no one could even make the claim that Moshe is pocketing any of the funds. So he went out of his way to prove that he was being totally honest. He's not stealing anything from the public fund. And Moshe's invoking this. This is, so to speak, his merit. The merit of a public leader is the fact that they're entirely committed to their mission and they have nothing, no benefit for it, for it themselves. You know, today, you know, if you, if you, if you want to get anything, if you want to get legislation passed, it helps to have a, a bunch of senators in your pocket. You, you, it's like it's, Yes, I understand. I don't want to talk about politics, but this is bipartisan, so we could. It's just a fact. The way the way things actually happen. Every every big company has lobbyists. Why? Why do they have lobbyists? Because they pay money to have legislation written in their favor. And why do they donate to candidates? Do they really care about the candidates? No, they care about themselves. And there's this wink, wink. You support the candidates, and the candidates will give you a kickback in the form of positive legislation. That's just the way it is. And there's ample evidence to this. That's a fact. And that's on both sides of the aisle. 
A real public servant is someone who says, I'm not taking anything, not even things that I deserve, so I won't be swayed. And Moshe is telling God, pointing out the fact that even the things that I really deserve, because I'm, I'm entirely on a mission for the nation, even that I paid for myself, and thus I'm doing my job faithfully. So they have this, um, uh, Moshe tells Korach, everyone prepare this fire pan, put the incense on it, bring it before Hashem, all your 250 um, cohorts, let them each bring a, a fire pan, and Aaron, and they took the fire pan, and they put the incense on, uh, on it, and everyone was so sure, that the Korach seemed to be very um, certain that he's going to win this uh, showdown. And in verse 20, God, the Almighty says to Moshe, I'm sick and tired of these people. Separate yourself. I'm going to destroy them. Again, they pray and they say, one man sins and you get upset at everyone. That's not fair. Hashem tells Moshe, okay, I'm not going to destroy the entire people, but tell everyone to remove themselves from Korach, Dasan, and Aviram and those people and remove themselves from the dwelling places of those people. And... Uh, one last-ditch effort Moshe does um, to to reconcile with Dasan and Aviram in verse 25. Moshe went himself to Dasan and Aviram, and they followed them. And Rashi here says that the reason why he went there was maybe, just maybe, if Moshe, you know, once the die is cast already, but maybe Moshe could save this rebellion, save those people. And unfortunately, they ignored it. Moshe tells everyone, make sure you distance yourself from the tents of these sinners. Don't touch anything that belongs to them because maybe you too will um, be, uh, will be uh, you will suffer, you will perish because of their sins. So everyone cleared themselves away from their tent. Dasam and Aviram, they were standing stoically at the entrance of the tent with the wives and the children and their infants. It's interesting that there is one character at the beginning of the story that doesn't appear at the conclusion of the story, and that's On Ben Pelas. On Ben Pelas, he was part of the initial rebellion, and then once things kind of got heated up, he removed himself. And Imidris tells us what happened to him. His wife gave him good advice. His wife said to him, you don't have any skin in the game. You don't have a horse in the race. You don't have a stake in this fire. If Moshe is tr- is is the real leader, then you're your own Ben Pelis and you you have no special role. If Korach is the leader, then you also have no special role. So what do you have to gain from this dispute? So even the, so, he's like, yeah, it makes sense. Why am I getting the only trouble can result from me partaking in this strife? And they actually created an interesting way of removing um, they he hid in the tent and I don't remember the exact details but his wife was at the entrance of the tent and she was like oh I'm not, I'm not fully dressed don't come in don't come in so whenever they tried to get Oman Pelos to come join the fray his wife stopped them at the door and he was hiding under the bed inside the tent and therefore he was saved and uh, this is she's one of the great heroines of, of the Torah this Oman Pelos' wife uh, we don't know much about her besides for this episode. And, of course, the good lesson to take from it that sometimes, you know, the wife, she has more of a, a clearer perspective and she can kind of sense the pros and cons of a given venture. And she saved her husband um, from having the same fate that befall upon him. Look, at verse 27, it gives, it lists, Dasam and Aviram, their wives, their children, and their infants. Rashi in the Talmud, uh, they, they kind of are wondered, they're wondering why, why is it mentioned their children and their infants? And they say that actually the punishment that befell Dasam and Aviram actually affected their wives, their children, and even the infants who have absolutely no say in the matter. And Rashi gives us a very stern, very stern lesson here. Come and see how difficult is strife. For a earth-based court, they only judge adults. But the heavenly courts, they only judge 
someone who reached the age of 20. So our courts here judge someone who's 13 or 12 for a girl, and the heavenly courts only judge someone who's 20. But here, even infants were part of this judgment. And the question is, why? Like, well, why do infants suffer particularly in the case where there's strife versus uh, of every other sin or every other misdeed that they're only judged by God at 20 and by human courts at 13. Um, so I, I saw two a- explanations for this. Firstly, I saw that a child reared in strife will never be able to free themselves from that, from those attitudes. And therefore, if they it, strife permeates the home. It's not just an isolated sin. It's an attitude. And if, an, if a child is reared on an attitude of hatred, of disunity, that affects them and that's going to mold them. And therefore, those kids are corrupted from the beginning. That's one explanation I saw. I saw another explanation, which is, I think, even a little bit more terrifying. But I think there's a good lesson inherent in it. This is from the Maharal uh, of Prague. He says that there is this idea called din. Din is a very popular code word in Jewish philosophy. Din literally means judgment. But it refers to the way, a certain way that God can treat us. Like, for example, Rosh Hashanah, the nickname for Rosh Hashanah is Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. Rosh Hashanah is the Day of Judgment. The day, Yom Kippur is the Day of Mercy. Because Rosh Hashanah, God judges us what's fair and square. And Yom Kippur, the Almighty has a certain degree of elasticity towards us. There's repentance, and then there's kindness, and there's prayer, and there's fasting. All that can change. But judgment is very rigid and very fixed. And everything we try to do in our life is to avoid judgment, to avoid din. Someone who has fights, someone who has arguments and division and disunity and discord and strife and machlokas, is someone who's not willing to depart from din, from what the letter of the law is. If someone is willing to forfeit even a little bit, yes, I may be deserving, but so what? The peace is more important. The harmony is more important. Someone who has that characteristic, who's able to depart even a little bit away from din, is someone that won't be involved in fights. Because they recognize, yes, I may be right, but so what? Some things are more important than that. You see people that they lose relationships with family uh, based upon minor squabbles of money or uh, something happened or how could they do this to me. And you know what? Both sides may have legitimate arguments. And that's why. And they say, well, I'm right. So what if you're right? Why are you sticking? Why are you cleaving to din? When something's more important than that, give up a little bit. Yes, you're right. So what? But why don't you apologize? Well, how can I apologize if I'm right? Who cares if you're right? It doesn't matter. What are you going to gain by being right? It's like that. Um, uh, it's like that um, headstone on the grave about the guy who was. Uh, uh, how does it go? Here lies the body. Uh, here lies the body of William J., who died maintaining his right of way. He was right, dead right, as he sped along. But he's just as dead now as if he were wrong. <laughs> I memorized that as a teenager. I thought it was very clever. And kids are learning about <laughs> the movie Frozen. Let it go. <laughs> Let it go. Okay, well, good lesson, I guess. You, you may be right, but so what? You'll be dead no less as if you were wrong. And we're encouraged, even if you're right, to sometimes give up a little bit. And that, that way you'll have peace. Someone who has a fight, someone who's not willing to deviate from din, from judgment. And the Almighty always treats someone the way he treats others. If someone is not willing to depart from din in their own behavior, then the Almighty will judge them with din as well. The reason why children are not subject normally to judgment is because the Almighty does not only operate with din. The Mari operates with chesed, with kindness, with rachamim, with erech all the midos, all the characteristics we read last week that Moshe invoked and by the golden calf. The Almighty 
normally we see the Almighty says, I want to destroy them instantly. That's Din. And Moshe says, well, what about Rachman? What about Chesed? What about the, all the other characteristics of God? Treat them with those. Someone who himself says, I'm going to embrace Din and Din alone. God says, okay, with you, I'm going to embrace Din and Din alone. And when that happens, everyone's fair game. There's no mercy, no kindness, no anything. And tragically, even young children, young babies suffer. So what's going to happen here? Moshe tells the nation, he announces to everyone, I'm going to prove to you that Hashem sent me. I didn't make this all up myself. I'm not an imposter. If these men die like normal people, then I'm, I'm no special. I'm not. Um, if they just die regularly, as normal people die, then Hashem did not send me. But if Hashem creates a new phenomenon and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them and all that belongs to them alive, then you know that these people start up with Hashem. He finished speaking. There's this massive uh, uh, earth hole, ground hole, sinkhole. There's a massive sinkhole and the ground splits open. It opens its mouth. It swallows all these people, Korach and all his family and all their money and all their stuff. And it covers back, back itself up. Everyone freaks out. They say, let the earth not swallow us. A, fl- a flame came from Hashem and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. And the point uh, was very well made that uh, indeed God did create a brand new phenomenon and that approved again uh, and for all eternity that Moshe was not making up his decisions on his own. It was all uh, given to him directly by God. So, so what, what's the aftermath here? So chapter 17, 17 starts off where Hashem tells Moshe, the Almighty tells Moshe, go tell Elazar to pick up these pans. So these people are, are, are dead, but their pans are still there. Pans of incense, of offerings. And uh, throw away the fire, they became holy, which, by the way, does prove that there was some righteousness of their activity. Take these pans, melt them down, and make them sheets to cover the altar. So from then on, the altar was covered in this bronze uh, layering to remind everyone uh, not to question God or Moshe by extension. And as a reminder to the Jewish people, children of Israel, that no alien who is not an offspring of Aaron shall draw near to bring the smoke of incense before Hashem, and he not be like Korach and his assembly, as Hashem spoke about him through Moshe. So there's actually... um, an eternal reminder of the misdeeds of Korach and his people to not rebel and not claim that they have rights to become a Kohen, and that was these fire pans were actually uh, melted down and placed uh, upon the altar in the temple, in the tabernacle as well. Okay, so... Uh, and there's some, uh, there's going to be some uh, aftershocks of this. So, by the way, verse 5 is actually a mitzvah that no one should ever be like Korach and his assembly. No one should ever make this machlokas, make this infighting amongst the people, especially uh, with respect to not questioning the legitimacy of the Kohen uh, or the leadership of Moshe. Um, so, the next day, people are very incensed about this no pun intended, they come to Moshe and to Aaron and say, you kill the people of Hashem. They start complaining again. Hashem tells Moshe again, a third time, remove yourself from the people, I'll destroy them. Moshe quickly tells Aaron, this is dangerous. You have to quickly make a take a fire pan, put uh, incense upon it, and go amongst the people to atone for them. There's going to be a plague right now. There's nothing we can do to stop Hashem's plague against the people unless you bring incense. So he quickly takes the incense. He runs into the nation. The plague starts, and the plague is making its way through the nation. He runs right between the plague, and there's the dead on one side, the living on the other side, and the plague stops, and 14,700 people died in that plague. Where did Moshe know? That incense is a special uh, formula for stopping a plague. Talmud tells us that when Moshe went up to heaven to get the Torah, 
he had all these interactions with angels. And one of the things angels told him, there's a secret I want to share with you that, and Rashi brings it down, by the way, in uh, verse 11. He quotes the Gemara on Shabbos, famous Gemara on Shabbos that talks about what happened to Moshe when he went up to heaven. The angel of death told him, if you want to stop a plague, bring Ketoros. So he knew there was a plague coming. He quickly told Aaron. Of course, Aaron's the only pe- family of Cohen's the only ones who bring Ketoros, who bring incense. Go quickly grab some incense, and he stopped the plague. By the way, uh, incense was uh, a fixture, a central fixture of the Yom Kippur ceremony in the temple. Uh, and because, as we know, this is something where we're trying to stop a plague. A plague means that God is has determined that what's proper, that we should die. On Yom Kippur, what we're doing, we're trying to accomplish is maybe it's proper that we should die, but anyhow, let's have this magic incense to stop it, because that's the one thing that can stop even the angel of death. Um, okay, so, so Moshe senses that the people are not fully uh, quieted by everything that's happened till now, so he makes this one last amazing proof to Aaron's leadership. He tells every tribe to nominate their leader and to give their staff and write the name of the staff. So every tribe writes the name of the head of the tribe on the staff on a, on a stick. They write the name of Aaron on the tribe of Levi and they place it in the, in the Mishkan right next to the ark and we'll wait till what happens tomorrow. Tomorrow they come back and they find that all the 12 staffs are there along with Aaron's staff and Aaron's staff blossomed and there's almonds and flowers coming out of it and he pulls out the staffs and he says, okay, this one says Aaron. I look at it and there's all the other ones are unchanged. Is, there, is this enough proof for you that indeed Aaron is legit? Don't question him. He's the coin and God decides that. And Geshem tells Moshe, finally, take the staff and place it for posterity, for safekeeping, uh, that as a sign, people shouldn't rebel against against Moshe. Rashi, by the way, says, why did it blossom into almonds? It's really strange. Why, why almonds of all things? So Rashi tells us that um, almonds have a certain characteristic that they actually they sprout very quickly. It takes them a long time for them to, to blossom, to develop. And therefore, what it's the lesson is, if someone starts up with the legitimacy of the Kohen, their retribution will be very swift. Okay, a nice idea that Rashi shares. Okay, so the people, of course, are, 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 are still fearful, um, but this maybe looks like the good kind of fear where they recognize the fact that they're, they're shooken up by what they see. And I think it's a good lesson for them to realize that God means business. That's the end of the story of Korach. And the parsha concludes uh, with a delineation of the role of the Kohen. So it looks at uh, various mitzvahs of the Kohen, uh, what, what, they, what, their, uh, what their roles are, what their responsibilities are, and what their benefits are. So there's, for example, the, the verse talks about uh, the truma. Truma is a gift given to the Kohen, Kohen alone. Um, various parts of sacrifices that are given to the Kohen. Various animals that are given to the Kohen. Firstborn is redeemed. You remember we had the firstborn was redeemed initially, but every future firstborn has to be redeemed with the five sacred shekels. Uh, animals have to be redeemed, given to the Kohen. Even when the Levites get tithings, they have to tithe from their tithes to the Kohen. And uh, thus concludes the Parsha, where the role of the Kohen and the benefits of the Kohen are once again uh, reinforced. So the Parsha, indeed, I think it's a... Um, it's an important lesson for us that we can take for us even today. Uh, I think the, maybe the, the most important lesson is that everyone's given responsibility by God and the responsibility is reflected in their character and their qualities and their abilities and their circumstances. And uh, others were given other responsibilities and there is a motivation or temptation that we may have to try to question that. 
uh, Korach questioned it, and he his uh, the result of his uh, insurrection uh, was very swift and very and very uh, brutal. And indeed, this is almost the end of a whole series. The Book of Numbers is a whole series of complaints or um, uprisings against motion against God. Uh, this seems to be, I think, is essentially the last one. And uh, next week, we're actually going to fast forward uh, from the beginning of the 40 years. We're still in year two now. We're going to jump all the way to the end of year 40, uh, or the, the 40th year uh, in Etrid's Parsha. And we're going to talk about the very important events that happened at the end of the 40 years, leading all the way to the death of Moshe at the end of the Torah.